MaskLab is a hub for multimodal and digital scholarship that explores the relationship between media and our changing society. We support, curate, and create media intended to spark dialogue and social change, and the development of pedagogy that uses media to foster civic engagement. MassLab is located in the Communication, Media, and Learning Technology Design Program at Teachers College, Columbia University. Welcome to the newest episode in our MassLab Collaboratory podcast series. I'm Caroline DeVoe. In this episode, MassLab fellow Joe Rina Ferry interviews Teachers College alum Janelle Drone, who completed an EDD in Education Administration and Curriculum and Instruction in 1987. Dr. Drone teaches school administration and finance and has been researching funding mechanisms and infrastructure of the one-room schoolhouse, which became a critically important vehicle for political, social, and economic mobility for most Americans. And for former slaves, the one-room schoolhouse served as a meeting place where information about the affordances of American citizenship was often shared. The first in a series of papers Dr. Drone is publishing is entitled Invisible Assets and the Rise of Delaware African-American One-Room Schools. Dr. Drone hails from a rural community in La Mesa, Texas, and attended segregated schools. Her research, which offers surprising nuances, grew out of personal experience. Hi, Dr. Drone. Hey. Your second grade teacher was a big influence on you. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about her? Her name was Eva Ruth Wilson. She came to rural West Texas, La Mesa, from Houston. She had gone to Prairie View A&M, and we became our first students. And she gave us the world and geography. She would tell us about Africa in music. She would tell us the difference between Marian Anderson and Nat King Cole and Bo Diddley. I remember saying, oh, I want to be like that. My research focused on one-room school facilities because they were the foundation for learning before Plessy and Brown. Uh, teaching and learning for African American started, for the most part, in the one-room school facilities. And in your work, you talk about what an incredible and needed accomplishment it would be to try to establish uh, institutional education in an environment that was in a lot of cases hostile to the education of African Americans. Dealing with, with the enslavement, uh, it was against the law to learn. So sometimes the learning took place one-on-one -on -one or in group situations, in churches, in houses, in the field or wherever they could. So to find a place that could shelter their learning was like a, a, a big deal. The one-room school uh, concept was ideal for the African-American community. You know, for survival and maneuvering in a segregated society, they needed those schools and that's what those schools provided them with. Can you tell me some of the different elements that went into putting together the, uh, the schooling system and the facilities in the time that you're talking about? Going back to Horace Mann, 
He established a foundation for what the one-room school archetype should be. Uh, it was designed for ventilation, for safety. Uh, the windows were not uh, structured so children could look out. Windows were established for uh, fresh air. The, the construct would be three uh, adjacent windows on each side so that the air could come in and flow. It had to be of a certain height so that speaking quality would not be obstructed. The floors had to be uh, immaculately swept because sometimes people didn't have shoes and they couldn't be, have splinters in their feet. So, I mean, they were very well thought out for safety measures. There were never to be more than 50 students in these one-room school facilities. In some instances, there would be three or four different grades in that one room. Within that foundation, learning took place. And so you focus on DuPont, who was a major philanthropist in one-room schools in Delaware in your work. Mm -hmm. Would you tell me why DuPont and Delaware are important in this uh, part of history? The DuPont Foundation and family uh, were mega uh, wealthy and he became a member of the Delaware State uh, Education Board and in learning about the system he wanted to know about the schools so he began his learning about the deficits between the rural uh, uh, African-American schools and the rural white. He hired architects from Columbia to come and do surveys and to look at, it, it, research each of a lot of these facilities. And he had the data that he needed to begin erecting schools based on the findings that were reported to him about the deficits in the facilities, the buildings for African-American, DuPont decided that he was going to build these schools. And he put up $900,000 in early 1900. And he built 114 one-room school facilities. And he donated 87 of that 114 to the African-American community. So, I mean, that's fascinating to me that um, he would uh, be so generous in his spirit and in his objective in making sure that, these, that the African-American community had uh, an opportunity to get educated in a facility that was on par with, uh, with the white community. And in many instances, the research will show that the, build, the structures that he created for the African American, they were the same. So the separate but uh, equal 
phenomenon with DuPont did match. He, they were equal all the way. The same structures he put in place for one, he put it in place for the other. Three decades later, uh, the Brown decision was made. It was a landmark ruling in 1954, and it specifically spoke that separate but equal educational facilities are inherently unequal and that segregation was therefore unconstitutional. You were, were telling me that you thought that Brown versus Board might have had some, some problems with what it focused on mm -hmm. as far as desegregation. Can you tell me more about what you think about uh, Brown versus Board? Yes. Uh, when Brown was implemented, well, mandated by the Supreme Court, its main focus was on school facilities. Brown basically erased Plessy v. Ferguson case. The Brown decision specifically spoke about the facilities, but in the implementation process, they went inside and dealt specifically with the instructional piece. That means that they dismantled the teachers in the black community, they were fired or sent some other place. The interruption of the, the instruction by throwing teachers out really caused serious harm in the African American community because Though that was a stable segment of society. It's very middle class. We saw them in church. We saw them at the supermarket. We saw them at the dry cleaners. When desegregation came, that segment of society was removed. We were afforded an opportunity to be housed in a different facility, but the teaching was not better than. It was perhaps, in many cases, lacking because that dynamic of seeing who you are or who you can be, it was missing in the, in the integrated situation. I think that's really interesting and important, the human cost of um, all of these African-American educators that we don't talk about when we talk about the sort of school book history version of Brown versus Board of Education. You were part of integrating your school district in rural Texas. Yes. What was that like for you? It was, it was phenomenal. We integrated the school in 1963. When we arrived, the white students greeted us with candy and asking us to sign up for their clubs, the booster club, or to be in this project. I mean, it was just, it was like a party or something. And another thing that happened in the integrating our school, the principal of the, L, the Blackshire School, E.L. Blackshire School was our school, he came with us to the high school and he taught, he was a great scientist, he taught physics 
and chemistry in the high school. And we would see him in the hallways uh, in the morning, and then about lunchtime or before the afternoon, he went back to the black school. So we had, and he, and he became the principal again. So he came with us. I mean, this was a, this is a strategy that I think if more people had that type of a strategy, they would have been uh, more comfortable and feeling more accepted and excited about the process. What would you hope that current educators and administrators and researchers would learn from this earlier period or that you could um, and that you do in your current work um, teaching about facilities, what are you hoping that people will think about that they're not thinking about now? If you're going to run a school as a principal, a building or a district level, you have to be competent in facilities, that's renovations, uh, cafeteria, floors, you need to be as competent in facilities as you are in curriculum. And I think that most people present education as if you're going to be a principal, you got to know the curriculum and the testing schedule and the music and all. But you, if you're going to be a 21st century principal, it's going back to the way the school system was was designed in 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 one, the one room school concept in that the facilities and the curriculum are one and the same not the way it is today and i think that's a major major uh conflict of interest in that they have school construction which is a budget 10 times the size in New York City as the instructional piece. One room schools, the facilities and the fundings were considered a part of the same dynamic. We hope you enjoyed this discussion with Janelle Drone, a research fellow at the New York Public Library, member of the Country Schools of America Foundation, TC alum, and lifelong educator. You can learn more about Dr. Drone's research into the inextricable links between school finance, infrastructure, learning, and curriculum on the MassLab website. Episode four of the MassLab podcast series was produced by Joe Rena Ferry, Caroline DeVoe, and Kyle Oliver at the Media and Social Change Lab at TC. Thanks so much for listening.